Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Show podcast. Today on the pod, Canada's inflation rate dips below 4%. And BC's inflation rate hit 3.2%. Have we reached the last leg of the inflation battle? And could we be spared interest rate hikes for the rest of 2023? Plus, why are Vancouver developers looking to delay building downtown high-rises? Plus, the Premier and the Solicitor General say the three policing fight is over, even though the court battle has just begun. Now what? That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. But first, let's talk inflation and, of course, of course, cost of living challenges. Today, we learned Canada's inflation rate dipped to 3.8% in September, surprising analysts. While here in BC, our inflation rate is down to 3.3% for September. The latest numbers bring the province back to where inflation stood in July prior to the full impacts of the BC port workers' strike, which uh, hit the economy pretty hard. Now, does this mean Canadians can breathe a sigh of relief because the inflation rate is dropping and it reduces the chance of interest rate hikes for 2023? Well, there's no doubt affordability remains issue number one for Canadians. Now, the inflation rate has dropped due to a variety of factors. Airfare prices fell by 21%. Probably didn't feel like it, mind you, but it did. they did fall by 21%. And furniture prices fell by 4.6%. But challenges do remain. Grocery, grocery prices rose overall by 5.8%, down from 6.9% in August. Uh, price uh, for baked goods went up by 8%, and the price for meats went up by 4.4%. Now, the federal government is absolutely aware of what Canadians are thinking and feeling. In fact, they uh, pretty much are seeing that in the polls. The Canadians just aren't happy with the government's handling of the economy at this point. Well, today, Treasury Board President Anita Nunn said that the federal government will begin sharing the results of its spending review next month and promised Ottawa would tighten its belt. Take a listen. I asked ministers to look at any excess spending to find a total of $15 billion over five years and $4 billion every year thereafter. Every minister has been tasked with re-examining things like outsourcing and executive travel to determine whether there is any waste. And the goal is to refocus that spending towards current priority issues for Canadians, like the clean economy and affordable housing and supports overall for the middle class. That was Treasury Board uh, President Anita Anand. Now, I told you about the fact that grocery prices are still going up. Uh, they rose uh, by 5.8%, less than 69 but 5.8% uh, in September. Baked goods are up, as well as meat prices are up as well. Uh, Francois-Philippe uh, Champagne, uh, Champagne, the Innovation and Science Minister, warned grocery chains to get their act together as well. Take a listen. Canadian must be able to put food on the table. Canadians must get competitive prices and we must increase competition. And for that to happen, we need to see words into actions from the grocers. If we don't see that, and let me repeat, if we don't see that, we are ready to take more action so that we can get more tools 
in order to have a more competitive market here in Canada. That is Francois-Philippe Champagne, our innovation minister, talking tough, uh, acutely aware, as I said earlier, of the frustration many Canadians have when it comes to the issue of affordability, particularly grocery prices. Joining now is Michael Levy, CKNW's business analyst. Good afternoon, Michael. Hey, Jazz. Uh, Tell me, first and foremost, uh, with the inflation numbers, what do they tell you? They tell me that things are easing a little, it's softening a little, and uh, uh, what you said at the outset, it's probably going to take quite a bit of pressure off the Bank of Canada to uh, hike interest rates. I don't see that now because uh, the fact is the higher prices have reduced spending because people can't afford as much. And then when you see inflation come down, albeit not by a huge amount, but on the right trajectory, as I say, that takes the uh, pressure off the Bank of Canada and we may have just may have seen the last interest rate hike. I don't know when they're going to turn around and start lowering rates, but uh, the last interest rate hike could be right now, or uh, last one they did. Do you think we're in the middle of a recession, even if it's just a, a small recession, a short recession, a soft landing, whatever you want to call it? Do you think we're sort of in the midst of that now? Well, I think we're on our way to a soft landing. Like I, I do not see, we, we might get a bit of a recession, Jazz, but we are not going to see recession like we saw in 2008, 2009. And, and I, I, I think we are going to have a soft landing. People are cutting back and um, they're trying to live within their means. Uh, it's very difficult sometimes, but employment is good and people are getting jobs people are working and the employment market is strong and as long as we have that uh, i don't think we're going to have a recession it's just not going to be that easy it's hard to predict here but you know i've been reading different analysts views of things that some have said that look by summer next year fall you could actually see you know interest rates now seriously coming down at that point i think they will too they look the the, the main driver of inflation is mortgage interest costs. There is no doubt about it. And right behind it is rental prices. And those are a huge driver of inflation. Uh, but even they have dropped. Uh, they, they came down. Mortgage interest costs came, well, have, have leveled out. And um, they're, they're, they're not going higher. But rental prices, um, they accelerated further. They were uh, up to 7.3% from 6.5% in August. When the Bank of Canada, as you say, can start to lower rates, that means the prime rate goes down, and that means the mortgage rates will start to come down, and then you're going to see inflation drop a little further. But that could be one of the main catalysts. Mm-hmm. I was reading uh, one article saying, look, it's always uh, it's easy to, to drop inflation numbers from 8 to 4%. It's the 4 down to 2% that's tougher, because then it gets tougher and tougher and smaller and smaller increments. I guess that's a challenge now for the Bank of Canada the next three to six months is can they bring it down to two percent and that's that's their goal it it is their goal now uh we are going to probably next month when we see the inflation numbers come very very close to the bank of canada's guidelines of one to three percent inflation that's what they want we could actually come down in the next couple of months and touch the higher end of that goal that the three percent that will not give them the leeway to bring mortgage rates down. But when you hit the, 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 that, that sweet spot of 1% to 3%, once you start to come under 3%, and I don't think that's far away, that will give the Bank of Canada leave to maybe 
drop the rates a quarter percent. And uh, honestly, I'm looking for that at the beginning of the year. I think we've got another couple of months of this. But if inflation keeps heading down, albeit slowly, I think the Bank of Canada is going to have leave to start to lower the rates a little. And that's going to make a huge difference to Canadians, how much money they've got left mm-hmm. in their wallet after they pay mortgage and after they pay rent. So it could be a monumental swing coming up. Yeah, and, I, and, I, and I'm, I'm ever the optimist, but, you know, sometimes you look at geopolitical issues. Uh, you know, we, we've got the issue in Ukraine. Ukraine has not gone away when it comes to the impact it's had on energy prices. Uh, you then take in what's happening in Israel now and the challenge that that may spread to Lebanon, even potentially Iran. Uh, you don't know how long that uh, conflict will last. Uh, and that can all have an impact on energy prices. Energy prices, and they're not the only thing, mind you. We've talked about furniture prices to 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 to, to flight, but at the core, energy drives so much of this at the end of the day. And the prices of fuel impact uh, the inflation rate in a significant way. Absolutely. So you've got the geopolitical in Ukraine, you've got the geopolitical in the Middle East, and um, that is, that that's going to be a driver of energy prices. And uh, if this, we don't see a turnaround in that, then we can see oil, which is now trading in the $85, $86 a barrel range, go up over $90 and $95 a barrel. And that's the one bug in the ointment, fly in the ointment, if you will, is energy prices could easily go higher. The U.S. strategic reserves are at a very, very low level. So that's a uh, that's an area that we're watching and maybe holding our breath a little bit. Well, especially here in Vancouver, when we were just above $2 not too long ago, a few weeks ago. We're at $1.85 now, and, and it doesn't take a lot to, to, to push those prices. And next thing you know, it impacts food delivered to the grocery store, to the restaurant, and everything else that you buy along with it. And uh, that's the one thing we definitely have to have to keep an eye on. Although I do like the idea of government finally going, wait a minute, maybe we need to tighten our belt as well. What would you think of Anita Nunn's comments on just refocusing government spending? That's exactly, Jazz, you just nailed it, refocus government spending. They're not cutting their spending. What they're doing is cutting the increase in spending that they announced in the last budget. They're cutting back on that increase. But don't don't look at it as, I, I, I don't want our listeners looking at it that the government is cutting spending. They're cutting the increase. And the Sylvain Charlebois, who... Uh, has been speaking lately on food prices. He's from uh, Dalhousie University, Agri-Canada, and he is Canada's expert. He says that the three major food chains are not gouging Canadians, not at all. So it's it, it looks good politically to attack those two areas, but you've got to look at facts and data and numbers. Yeah, absolutely. Michael, thank you as always for your time. Thanks, Jazz. Welcome back to the show. In this segment of The Next Million, let's focus a little bit on commuting. Anyone can relate to the feeling of wasting precious hours every week in a car or a train. Then the COVID-19 crisis hit and a large percentage of the world stopped commuting. Streets and trains were suddenly empty. Now, it's safe to say the world is getting back to a new normal, but there still remains uncertainty regarding urban mobility in the near future. Now, according to the 2021 census, the number of people commuting to jobs in Metro Vancouver declined by 20% between 2016 
and 2021. According to the Rennie Group, the pandemic reduced commuting flows by approximately 34% from what would have been expected in 2021 had there been no pandemic. Now, the city of Vancouver had the most jobs to which people commuted uh, of any municipality in Metro Vancouver at 224 that's 28% of the regional total. Surrey was next, accounting for about 16% of jobs to which lower, uh, lower mainland residents commuted to. That's about 127,000 jobs. And that was followed by Burnaby with about 11% of the jobs. The balance of the region accommodated the remaining 45% of jobs to which lower mainland residents commuted to. Now, of course, not all those commuting to their job do so across municipal borders. In fact, 47% of Metro Vancouver residents commute to a place of work that's located in the same city in which they live. Now, take everything I just said and add a million more residents to Metro Vancouver by 2050. Well, it's an issue our next guest knows very well. Brent Totteron uh, is a uh, city planner. He's an urbanist at Totteron Urban Works. He's a former, formerly chief planner of the city of Vancouver and now advises cities all over the world on city planning needs. Brent, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Glad to be here. That was a bit of a mouthful, but I wanted to sort of put everything into context because (laughs) things are changing, never mind 2050, but even now in a post-pandemic world. Um, Just broadly speaking, because so much of impact, so many things that government does uh, in regards to policy impacts commuting, quite frankly. How do you envision a commute in 2050? Um, What would a morning commute potentially look like to you? (laughs) Well, you know, planners never like to admit this, but my my honest answer is I don't know, and I'm not a futurist. I, I'm not. I don't have. I'm not a big fan of these folks who say this is what the future is going to be like because they're mm-hmm. guessing. Mm-hmm. And I always say they're wrong. I just don't know in what direction and by how much yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but I'm a city planner, not a city guesser. So I spend my time figuring out based on the challenges we have: climate change, housing crisis, equity crisis, public health crisis, etc. How do we need to change? Not how are we going to change if we just let it happen, but how do we actually need to change? Because planning, city planning is intervention mm-hmm. in, in change. And I'll tell you what we need to do, because it's not that hard to picture what other cities, uh, city regions uh, could look like with a million more people than ours, because there's a lot of those regions out there. We're still a relatively, by global standards, a relatively small region. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I work all over the world, so I work in all scales of places. But I'll tell you this. If we want the region to be better, if we want it to be more livable and more sustainable, more equitable, et cetera, et cetera, with a million more people than it is now, Mm -hmm. this is the recipe that we need. We need um, more housing. Mm -hmm. We need um, uh, less land used for for that housing. In, In other words, as we add more housing, we can't gobble up more land and more agricultural land, more green belt, uh, ALR, et cetera. We need fewer cars, but more trips. We're going to be moving more, even with working from home. We're going to have more trips in our day. But what we can't have is more car trips, and we can't have more overall cars. Mm-hmm. We're going to grow people. Here's the, here's the, here's the tagline. Mm-hmm. We grow people, but we can't grow more cars. We know from every place that is car dependent, car overrun, if you are growing cars at an equal rate to your growing people, your region gets worse. You're stuck in traffic. Everybody's stuck in traffic. Mm -hmm. So we need to accommodate more trips with less space, with less public cost, with less pollution and lower climate emissions, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And and space being a big part of that. So you notice I say more trips, fewer cars. I I didn't say better cars. Yes. And most of the conversation gets gobbled up in this conversation of, well, we're going to have electric cars being the common car. We may even have driverless cars, although the jury is still out on that, notwithstanding what the boosters actually say. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
better cars isn't enough. Every study from any uh, credible place shows that although we do need better cars, we need them to emit less. We at the same time need substantially fewer cars. If we're growing too many cars, we're all stuck in gridlock. It's a space problem. In a region like ours, it's as much a space problem as it is an emissions problem. Although, don't get me wrong, emissions are incredibly important. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the lazy narrative out there is don't worry – we're all going to be in electric cars and maybe driverless cars too. Yeah. The truth is we do need the cars we have to be electric cars, but we need fewer cars and we need fewer car trips. We need more trips by public transit. We need more trips by active transport, walking, biking, micro mobility, biking, bike share, scooters, etc. Mm-hmm. And your good old-fashioned feet when you've got the land use where things are close by, like the grocery store or the school that you can walk to. So we need no car dependency. We don't want to be dependent on cars in the suburbs, and in many of our suburbs we are. And uh, frankly, we need to have fewer cars owned and fewer uh, uh, car trips taken. That's a a result of smart land use decisions. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's about your density, your land use mix, having things close by. And I don't need to tell you that's controversial everywhere, but particularly in the suburbs. But frankly, we're going to need to grow our housing in a more dense way up versus out Mm -hmm. or else we are going to be car dependent and we're going to be gobbling up our ALR and our and our green belts, etc. So, so if, if that's where you're saying we need to go in regards to just uh, you know being less car dependent, which I mm-hmm. understand, um, how much of all of this at its core though is actually going to be driven by societal change? Not talking about less cars, but right. the employer saying, "I'll let you work from home two days a week right. because you can do it on Zoom uh, or things of that sort." Right. How much of that is driving? what commuting will look like in 2050. And I presume that your pun is intended, driving. I (laughs) I do the same. I always use the word driving in that context too, ironically. Uh, The pandemic has been a game changer. I've been a city planner for 31 years. We have been talking about telecommuting for all of those 31 years. In the Mm. 90s, we were predicting that, you know, within a few years, 25% of people would be commuting by, by, by technology rather than by vehicle or, or foot. Um, it never got above 1% or 2% of trips. And right up to the pandemic, it was not really a thing. Uh, but the pandemic changed things. The question is, and the jury is still out on this, is that a permanent change? Or how much, the better question is, how much of it is a permanent change? Because I do believe we're going to be talking about the pandemic as the turning point. But anybody who thinks commuting is going to disappear, yeah. that we're all going to be telecommuting, well, you've already seen the pushback. Right now, we're in a battle between employees and employers on whether or not there's return to the office. There are all sorts of issues, financial, economic issues, social issues issues, et cetera, at play, power dynamics at play, and we don't know who's going to win. And one of the earliest studies showed, uh, in, during the pandemic, I remember saying, seeing that the, the earliest studies showed, I think it was something like a 5% increase in productivity when people worked from home. And everybody said, holy cow, working from home is great, including for businesses. So what are you complaining about, businesses? Mm-hmm. And then a follow-up study showed that after that first six months or year of it, it went from a 5% benefit to something like a 2 or 3% negative based compared to pre-pandemic. In other words, I don't know, I'm I'm thinking people got so used to being at home, suddenly, you know, their their perspective on how to spend their day started to change. Or you can't believe in those studies at all. I honestly don't know. But mm-hmm. but I do know that 
I, I suspect strongly that the result will be something different than we think right now. I have seen so many cities I work in and work with give an answer about what the percent of commute trips will be um, replaced uh, by telecommuting versus cars. And at best, it might be an accurate guess for their city, but it won't be transferable to other cities. And as I've said, I'll, I'll, I'll wait and see. And we've got to have robust strategies that work no matter what the scenario is, because I know from experience that it's going to be wrong. We just don't know by how much and in what direction. So what we need is robust transportation systems. And we do need to be driving, pun intended, people towards uh, uh, mobility choices that take less space, cost less public money and are less subsidized, have lower emissions, fewer, less pollution, etc. And, and, and those are the things that aren't about the better car. Those are the things that are about fewer cars and less car trips. Welcome back to the show. If you're just joining us, we're speaking to Brett, uh, Brent Totteron, Sorry, uh, He is a city planner, urbanist at Totteron Urban Works and former uh, chief planner of the city of Vancouver. We're talking about commuting and what commuting uh, needs to look at and the decisions we have to make in this region in regards to uh, the healthy type of uh, commuting. Now, Brent, um, you talked a, a little bit about you know what commuting looks like moving forward and all types of commuting. Mm-hmm. And and we can you know there's we can talk about transit we can talk about e bikes and all right. those types of things that that that's an ongoing conversation but is at its core with another million people moving here is it actually also about getting people out of their cars? It is absolutely about fewer car trips, and for fewer car trips with more people, you need less people wanting to or needing to drive. But let's be really clear, because I get tired of this lazy narrative. This isn't about forcing anybody out of their car. The irony is we know, because we understand basic geometry, that if everyone is driving, even with the population we have now, let alone a million more people, nobody moves. That's geometry. That's gridlock. The best thing you can hope for if you're someone who wants to drive or needs to drive, and there are folks out there, are folks out there that do need to drive, the best thing they can hope for is that everyone around them isn't trying to drive too because they're all in front of you stuck in traffic. What you need is a, a situation where through smart land use decisions, through frankly a lot better proactive investment in things like public transit and active transport, etc., you've made public transit, walking, biking, etc., attractive to the people who are inclined to consider it. And if enough of those people consider it, then you get fewer trips, less cars, and the people who do need to drive actually have an easier time. You Mm -hmm. know, there's a simple fact that I've learned uh, after doing this for 31 years. Uh, If you're planning for everyone driving, it fails for everyone, including drivers, because you're all stuck in traffic. If If you design a city that's multimodal, that makes walking, biking, and public transit easy and attractive, it's better for everyone, including drivers mm-hmm. because i often i'm often standing in front of a, a large crowd of people and if somebody says to me but i need to take my kids to soccer or 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 what have you in, on the weekends or what have you i say well nobody's going to stop you from doing that but the best thing you can hope for is the person sitting beside you wants to walk the other person on the other side of you wants to take the bike and the people behind you want to take public transit because they're not fighting for the same amount of finite space with their large vehicle as you are 
So this is not a war in the car. That is lazy political narrative or media attempts at getting clicks. This is about cities that work better for everyone, including drivers, because we know that if everyone's driving, nobody's moving. Mm-hmm. That's just a fact. Now, uh, every city talks about a great transit system. And, uh, you know, I, I've, uh, you know, I take tra- transit uh, uh, at times as well, SkyTrain buses and all that sort of thing. Um, but sometimes I get frustrated. Maybe it's just being a former uh, political reporter for so long, mm-hmm. having sat through too many city council and <laughs> transit <laughs> translink meetings. Is this region capable of, capable of building uh, a, transit, a transit system that can cope with another million people, with 21 municipalities, uh, each with different perspectives, uh, with a transit system also that is funded by a 17 cent per, per liter funding model that is actually under threat with every time we sell an electric vehicle, that's one more system, one more person not paying into the system. Mm-hmm. Are we capable of building or at least staying up with this next million that's coming up to build that transit system? Of course we are. And I say that because I work in places that are doing this much smarter than we are. Um, we are getting better in Canada, in British Columbia, in Metro Vancouver, at realizing that a dollar spent on public transit is not a cost. It's an investment. It actually saves public money, mm-hmm. plus a whole bunch of other benefits, some that you can quantify and some you can't. But we tend to have the conversation horribly, horribly wrong about something like public transit or anything else. We say, well, can we afford to spend on public transit? And yet we never seem to have that conversation about car infrastructure. It's actually ridiculous. So... When you actually understand the dollars and cents of city and region building, you know the things that actually have a good return on investment uh, do result in the public goals that you claim you want, like climate change mitigation, the the things that will actually achieve that. We just need to be a lot more honest and uh, and willing to aggressively connect the dots on our good and bad decision making. And I see that. I ironically help other parts of the world with that very blunt conversation. And I see political bravery. And usually political bravery comes with an honest discourse about the real costs and consequences of doing the wrong thing in many cases. Do you think if we had a transit czar, somebody driving this politically and the narrative politically, because it can't be the transit CEO, there's a limitation Mm -hmm. there, you're not an elected official, but somebody at a regional level that's maybe elected driving some of these changes, say, look, this is where we're headed, we have to head this way, we can't have everybody in a car, and then perhaps we're missing some of that. Well, in my experience, even the the concept of a transit czar or any kind of czar still answers to somebody who can who can chicken out, to Mm -hmm. put it bluntly, because anybody who appoints a transit czar can fire them if the political heat gets too high. So I'm not convinced that there's a magic bullet like a transit czar. What I do know is that a lot of the decisions we have to make to position our region successfully for a million more people are not going to be popular today. Because we still don't have the honest discourse about the consequences of continuing the status quo. It's going to take political bravery. It's going to take a lot more honest and candid conversation about the costs and consequences of doing it wrong. And there's going to need to be decisive and brave decision making, whether that comes from a czar or just our regular elected officials, who I frankly think should be braver and more decisive. Either I've seen all kinds of models, but it's going to take bravery and leadership wherever it comes from. Brent Hodron, thank you so much for coming in today. I really appreciate it. Always enjoy my time with you. Appreciate my it. pleasure. I was just listening to our newscast there with um, uh, Rob Levy talking about uh, potentially no 
uh, interest rate increases over the next few months because uh, inflation uh, inflation is slowly, slowly heading in the right direction. 3.3% increase here in British Columbia uh, and 4% or just 3, sorry, 3.8% uh, nationally. Good news. And many are hoping that's a sign the Bank of Canada may keep interest rates where they are. And many have talked about 2024 uh, being a time when interest rates will be coming down. Of course, those high interest rates are impactive, uh, impacting uh, family budgets, government budgets, and budgets for developers as well. Recently, Dan Fumano uh, from the Vancouver uh, Sun and the province uh, wrote a story which showed that progress had stalled on three large downtown residential high-rises, uh, which if completed would total more than 900 new homes uh, and would have included a $52 million in payments to City Hall. Uh, now developers are asking council to extend the deadlines on the project. Now, we've heard of this before uh, on one or two other projects. Uh, joining me now to talk a little bit about why this potentially might be happening is Dan Fumano. He's a city columnist for the Vancouver Sun and the province. Dan, welcome. Hi, Jess. Well, I think it's a perfect day to, to have this conversation, actually, because we spent so much time talking about inflation and interest rates. Now, you did this story uh, the other day at the Vancouver Sun. Walk me through uh, a little bit about these projects and what's happening behind the scenes. Yeah, so it's a bit of a technical procedural thing, but I mean, essentially what it is, is we've got a series of big downtown high-rises, residential towers that were approved by Vancouver's previous council back in 2021. And at that time when council approved the rezoning, that's kind of a big key step in the process. But after that, the developers still have more work to do before they can actually break ground on it. And at the time, they had a sort of 24-month window for when they had to move forward to the next step. Now that 24-month window is closing and these developers haven't moved to the next step, which is enacting the bylaw, um, and so essentially they're seeking some more time, mm-hmm. um, which would entail delaying payments to City Hall, because that's one of the key conditions to enacting the bylaw. And this adds up to tens of millions of dollars that would go towards improvements in the area, community centers, affordable housing, child care, things like this, important priorities in the area. Mm -hmm. So they're looking to sort of delay these projects. They haven't been able to get to the point where they're able to break ground or been closer to breaking ground in these past two years. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about, in your story, you talk about these three three projects. One is a 49-story tower at uh, the 1400 block of West Georgia Street, and that's by the West Group mm-hmm. Properties, 193 condos, 162 market rentals. The other one is a 47-story uh, project um, uh, that's in the 1100 block of Broad Street. That would include 289 condos. And with commercial and childcare and cultural space as well, and that's with Merrick Architecture and Prima Properties. And there's another 43-story tower at the, in the 1600 block of Alberni Street with the Landa Global Properties. And once completed, hopefully completed, will be it'll include 198 condos and 66 rentals. Mm-hmm. Um, have you been given any sort of sense of why these are delayed? Is it a question of just? Uh, getting financing? Is it the overall uh, sort of malaise right now in regards to the the market itself? Yeah, so I wasn't able to get a hold of representatives of uh, Landa Properties or Prima Properties, those two developers, but I did speak at some length with the president of West Group Properties, so they have this 
it's, it's currently an apartment building on the 1400 block of West Georgia. And West Group is looking to basically redevelop the property where they would replace all of the existing apartments with new rental apartments, but then also add another 193 condos as well. Um, and the president of West Group, Bo Jarvis, kind of walked me through it and said that essentially it's the de- delays in the city process. So the the slow speed at which the city bureaucracy kind of has been moving over the last two years essentially has caused them to miss the window when this was a viable project. So he said, you know, if, if dealings with the city had moved along quickly enough after they first got this approval from the previous council two years ago, they might've been able to have broken, move forward with the project by now. But because of those delays, it slowed down to the point where they're at now when, you know, Mr. Jarvis told me, in his view, it's not a viable project right now. With interest rates being where they are, obviously it's just a completely different environment than it was two years ago when the press council approved it, or several years before that when West Group began negotiating with the city on this project. So interest rates are a major thing, but also construction costs have gone way up, and that's not unique to developers in Vancouver. Governments and all kinds of uh, organizations and entities around North America are finding construction budgets have gone way up. Mm-hmm. Um, so essentially they're not going to move forward with a project that's not viable. And that's what he says is right now, this project's not viable. I mean, it's their hope that at some point in the future, and they probably hope the near future, the market out there changes and this is a viable project again, and then they can move forward. And so council did in a, in the meeting today, council did approve this deadline extension, which essentially gives them, all three developers, uh, a six-month extension mm-hmm. for this window where they can kind of try to move forward. Yeah. The council approved it. So, well, that that's good news. So this gives them six more months of breathing space, uh, which mm-hmm. I understand. But in six months, uh, the market is has been turned upside down completely, like, as I said, for government, mm-hmm. for developers, for uh, everyday mm-hmm. citizens and their personal finances. In six months, sure. will the market change fast enough where these projects, as you said, were viable two, three years ago, and now they may not be? In six months, you may see a, a quarter point drop, hopefully, uh, interest rates, maybe half a point. I don't know. Um, but mm-hmm. is, it, is it remotely close to what it was two years ago, two and a half years ago? Uh, never mind being a, you know, a, an expert on financing and, and handling these big projects. Anybody, you know, <laughs> try to build a home on their own, a single family home, mm-hmm. knows full well uh, what the banks are doing right now. So is, is there been any talk that potentially there could be more developers who are stuck with their properties in the, and just the, the business plan doesn't work anymore? The market has been turned upside down at the moment. Yeah, I, I think that's Certainly a possibility. And as you say, I mean, really, a lot of these decisions are are dictated by the lenders and what lenders are willing to do. So these developers typically don't have huge amounts of money sitting in their bank accounts ready to move forward with, you know, paying tens of millions of dollars to the city for these community amenity contributions and then all of the money to to for the construction project. They need to borrow money from banks or other lenders. And it's I think it's Largely, it's not a situation right now where these lenders are uh, willing to lend at the rates that these projects would need to be viable. So, again, as you say, you know, a lot of these decisions are up to the banks and these developers need the finance to move forward. So what will it look like in the future? We don't know. Now, the reason we know about these three is because they had these 24-month deadlines imposed back two years ago 
got approved by the previous council. A lot of developments don't have this kind of sunset clause or this kind of deadline on them. So, so we know about these ones because they're coming to council. And so it's a matter of public record now that they're asking for these extensions and council approved it. Other projects that don't have these deadlines, they don't need to seek these kinds of extensions. So what we are hearing certainly from people in the industry is that there probably are some projects that are on the back burner and maybe not moving forward. Now the West group project, as I say, it is provide like that property is providing housing today. It's a 162 unit apartment building. So it's providing housing today. And probably for the people who live there, they're probably quite happy to, to hear that the redevelopment has been delayed. It means that they get to stay in their homes longer um, but, you know, there are other properties around town that are empty holes in the ground, or maybe it's a community garden or a temporary dog park or something, um, or, or, or an emptied out building. You know, there, there's apartment buildings in the West End and other places that have been emptied out of their previous tenants and sitting empty for years at a time, and we're not sure what the status of those ones is. So it is certainly something we're hearing, you know, chatter around the development industry that a lot of projects are uh, sort of on the back burner right now. Um, and obviously that's not what the mayor and city staff and, and the province and the housing minister, all of those, there's kind of this alignment between the different levels of government right now to build baby build. Yeah. But, uh, but the reality on the ground is proving more challenging. Yeah. I had the mayor, uh, here yesterday talking about eliminating yeah. red tape and, uh, he's got a committee and hopefully in about a month, he says they'll be able to announce some things. Uh, but you know, these types of stories that, um, you know, you've highlighted here, uh, say a lot. I mean, there's an indi- indicator there, and it's not necessarily government here. Yes, it took a long time getting things approved, and they're still in that process. Mm-hmm. But the outside world, the market itself, it just uh, it's it's not a great time right now to be looking for a loan, especially the size that these guys look for, the developers look for in regards to getting these projects through. So it's going to be a very interesting, you know, year to eighteen months right now, um, watching all of this uh, happen. Dan, thank yeah. you so much for your time uh, once again. I love your work and appreciate uh, you making time for us. Great, thanks for having me, guys. joined by Jerry Mayor Judson. You know, we talk about Surrey policing so much. We do? I think Mike Farnworth or Brenda Locke should have their own show. I agree, much, like, a, right? like a daily segment just to give an update you know, on what the sitch Simi, is, Simi, who's Sarah. fighting. Yeah, Simi, Sarah, Mike Smith, Jazz, Joe Hall, Jill Bennett. Might as well have the Mike Farnworth show, yeah. from, and, you know, or the, or the Brenda Locke Mayor's show. Mayor's past and present. I, but everybody's got an opinion on this. I mean, oh, yeah. I mean, Surrey basically says, look, over the next 10 years, if we go ahead of this, we have $460 million of unfunded costs right now. That's a liability. That doesn't even include the buildings, the capital costs, oh. right? And the provinces will give you $150 million. They bring in all this legislation, said we're going to, you're going to move forward with it because he has started this process and we've started introduce the legislation it'll it'll be passed with the ndp majority it'll be uh it'll be law in a few weeks right yeah now then uh <laughs> i thought okay surrey still has to fund the police so they can just say we're not going to support it sorry we're not going to approve this surrey city hall i got uh, uh we got a majority well uh, richard zussman today half an hour ago said he spoke mm-hmm. to because he and i talked earlier he said he talked to uh, the soul gen, uh, Mike Farnworth, he said, uh, just hang on. So could you actually see them appointing somebody to oh. City Hall? So they, they kick Brenda Locke off the mm-hmm. police board, and then they send somebody there, and they can tell you how Surrey should be spending the money. Like We do this every 10 years. Oh, Some boy. school board does something silly. Yeah. The province comes in, they clear out the whole board, they right. bring in an administrator. 
We've never done that for a city, especially the size of Surrey. Mm-hmm. And then you just sort of – not that you're getting rid of council. Council can do everything else. But when yeah. it comes to this, we're going to approve it we're gonna, and you're going to pay for it. Yeah. Like I've never it's seen like, that. I don't know. Calling the principal or something. It's, What's, uh, it's They're sending in a babysitter. <laughs> yeah, sending, sending in, in a babysitter. Fiscal babysitter, I, right? Uh, if you need a fiscal babysitter. And uh, I think some some folks on the buzz line, right? I mean, not they. no one mentioned like that idea in particular that they need a fiscal babysitter. But uh, we are not psyched about – how our tax funds are getting spent. This is just the way it's going, guys. Um, this is another example. The government will change the law, and that's it. Forget what you think. Forget what you want. And this is going to happen with just about everything in our lives. The government's going to change the law, and if you don't like it, you're going to jail, or this ain't happening. Forget about what you want, the people. It's the government is overreaching their boundaries. And again... I guess everybody gets to pay for it at the end of the day. Well, I guess the whole, all the people of B.C. get to pay for it, don't they? Jazz, I am so incensed by Farmer's heavy-handed approach to this. He's completely disregarding the democratic process and forcing such a massive tax burden on British Columbians or B.C. or three residents in particular. His arrogance is unbelievable. And this has become just a urinating match for him. But this is our life. We've got to pay for his decision. And Premier Eby, shame on you. This money could be going towards homelessness, drug rehabilitation, hospitals, schools. And for this, for what? Less than we have currently. This is just, it's insane. Uh, regarding the Surrey Police Services and the RCMP, um, you know, the RCMP has... I don't believe has done a good job. Um, I don't believe that their policing is enough and focused enough in Surrey. Um, the police, the Surrey police services are going to behave much like the VPD, whom I think are fantastic. And I think Brenda Locke needs to let this go. This it seems like it's become a personal issue for her. Let it go. She is costing more money by her stalling and stalling, leave it alone, change over to Surrey Police Services. Lots of opinions there. Everybody's got an opinion. It's not even Surrey residents who are going to have to pay the, the bulk of the dollars there, but uh, folks around the region, they're going to be fighting for police um, resources as well in regards to hiring. Uh, so it doesn't end here even if it does move forward. But, man, I don't know. If, if the, the $460 million liability that Surrey claims – if even half of it is true, oh. uh, that's still a lot of money. And I could just see Surrey, you know, when a property tax time comes around, they're calling it the police tax or oh, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Just call it the NDP police tax. Oh, like yeah. I have a line item to remind Surrey residents, hey, it wasn't us. I fought for it. Yeah. It's Mike Farnworth and gang, right? So uh, I don't know. What a mess. That's all oh, I can that's say. all it is. It's I a bit of a foster clock. Well, as I've said before, uh, it's a master class on how not to move major public policy mm-hmm. where you have to be mm-hmm. absolutely upfront with taxpayers and the cost in regards to timeline, all those things. It's just, it's a values thing. And the last council under Mr. McCallum was atrocious at this. And that's what got us here. And now, you know, whether Ms. Locke is right in regards to the cost or not, it's just, it's it's really frustrating. And they're all wearing it. The Victoria's wearing it because they mm-hmm. shouldn't have jumped in right away. Mm-hmm. Uh, the past council's report saying, ah, $40 million, the Opal report, this is all it's going to cost. Well, they're way off. Yeah, so, a factor and, of 10. Anyway, so let's leave it at that. We'll look at it again tomorrow. Because Certainly. We'll have to. <laughs> Cherry, thank you. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.